High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's episode takes us back to the Roaring Twenties, when Hollywood was first coming into its own as a place that made wild dreams involving sex and money and power come true, both in actuality and, maybe more importantly, in the public imagination. It's the story of a man who blew through an alarming amount of a massive inherited fortune in an effort to become the king of this world. In just a few short years, on the back of an insane gamble, Howard Hughes transformed himself from big spending hayseed to Hollywood big shot. But in doing so, he destroyed two marriages and nearly lost his fortune. This is the story of the arranged marriage that got Hughes to Hollywood, the passionate affair that helped to destroy that marriage, almost sent him to the poorhouse, and ultimately ended amidst mysterious circumstances, and the making of the first blockbuster of the sound era. Join us, won't you, for the first in a series of explorations of the many loves of Howard Hughes. Growing up in Houston, Howard Hughes Jr. was the only son of a self-made billionaire, Big Howard, and a beautiful hypochondriac, Aline. Big Howard patented an oil drill bit, which made him a fortune, most of which he spent on fine whiskey and fineries for women. While his dad was working and carousing, young Howard Hughes Jr., then called Sonny, formed an unusually close bond with his mother. When it came to preserving her son's health and hygiene, 
Aline Hughes was extraordinarily hands-on, personally inspecting his ears, teeth, genitals, and excrement morning and night. She also indulged her son's every whim. Eileen Hughes was probably responsible for two of her son's most problematic adult character traits, his fear of germs and his inability to deal with being told no. After his mother's death, Howard Sr. moved his then-teenage son to Hollywood, where instead of actually going to school, 17-year-old Howard filled his days learning the important stuff. He was tutored by Caltech machinists every morning and went to the movies, often triple features, every night. In between, there were golf lessons, tennis lessons, and three days a week, flying lessons. When Howard Sr. suddenly died of a heart attack the year his son turned 18, Howard Jr. inherited 75% of his estate. The other 25% went to various relatives, who Howard was determined to buy out so as to maintain total financial control over the highly profitable company his father had left behind. There was just one problem. At age 18, Howard Hughes Jr. was, at that time, legally considered to be a minor, and everyone looked at him and saw a child. Taking advantage of a loophole in Texas state law, he managed to convince a judge that he was capable of handling his own affairs. And gradually, his father's other heirs started lining up to be bought out. But none of this seemed like a good idea to his mother's sister, Antoinette, who knew that Howard's presentation to the judge had been, to put it delicately, absolute bullshit. She knew her nephew had no intention of running a tool company or even of going to university. She knew he was planning to hole up in Hollywood. Annette feared that Howard would run his father's company into the ground, that he'd be broke in a matter of months. I could not send him with all that money to Hollywood alone, she said. Not with all those vampire movie people. So Antoinette set up a condition. Howard Hughes could take his father's money and run to Hollywood if he took a wife with him. Howard wasn't an unwilling participant in this. He wanted to be perceived as an adult, and he figured that becoming a married man was one quick route to that. And he handpicked his wife. Ella Rice was the most sought-after debutante in all of Houston, the sister of one of Annette's best friends and a former classmate of Howard's. The Rice family name was a signifier of old Southern society. Unfortunately, Ella's branch of the family was broke. Engaged for three years to a man she loved, who didn't have any money either, Ella was eventually persuaded to drop her true love to become Mrs. Howard Hughes Jr. For her, it meant being kept in the lifestyle, which she felt was her birthright. For Howard, Ella would serve as an anchor, both grounding his nouveau riche vulgarity in respectable old money tradition and, at least Antoinette hoped, holding him back from his baser impulses. He may be an 18-year-old boy about to storm 1920s Hollywood with fuck you money, but with a wife waiting at home for him, he couldn't exactly run wild, right? Perhaps Annette didn't know that the day before the wedding, Hughes had met with a couple of Houston's best divorce lawyers in order to determine the best way to protect his investment in the event of certain eventualities. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The couple was young, rich, and not in love. Howard was frequently described as easily the best-looking man in any room he walked into, maybe more so for the fact that he was totally unaware that he was so good-looking. Columnists commented that the new Mrs. Hughes was easily pretty enough to be a movie star, but her husband could barely see her. They took separate suites at the Ambassador Hotel, well-known at the time as the place Hollywood people went to have affairs, and Hughes left Ella to her own devices, well, he started making the rounds of Hollywood, announcing himself as a new producer in town. Word got around that he was a Texas hick who had just inherited a fortune. Ben Hecht, the screenwriter of Scarface and Notorious, dubbed Hughes the sucker with the money. Hughes' first movie was a sucker's bet for sure. Swell Hogan, directed by and starring Ralph Graves, an actor whom Hughes met on the golf course, was budgeted at $40,000 and ended up costing $80,000, mostly because Graves had realized early that Hughes didn't know enough to know when to stop signing checks. The film had one disastrous screening and was never released. So that was $80,000, or about a million dollars in today's money, down the drain. Rupert Hughes, Howard's uncle, had been writing and directing movies for a while, and after the screening of Swell Hogan, Rupert took Howard aside and told him to give up, go back to Texas, and hold on to his fortune. Determined to prove his uncle wrong, Hughes started a new production company. The third film he produced, Two Arabian Nights, won the Academy Award for Best Direction. Hughes was learning his trade as a film producer, and he was also learning how to be a Lothario. A virgin before his wedding night, Hughes had little to no interest in his marriage bed. Instead, he hired hookers, only the finest, to show him the sexual ropes. By October 1925, Hughes had convinced his wife to leave Hollywood and install herself in their mansion in Houston for the holiday season. He promised her he'd meet her there by Thanksgiving. He didn't. She sent him telegram after telegram, begging him to join her for Christmas. He didn't. In mid-December, Howard's favorite call girl, a redhead with a predilection for fur, was killed in a car accident coming home from a date with Hughes. Any connection to the millionaire movie producer was easily covered up, and Hughes didn't mourn long. Shortly before Christmas, he was seen with a blonde starlet at Hearst Castle. At his Aunt Annette's insistence, Howard came back to Houston at New Year's and returned to Hollywood with his wife. But he felt he couldn't breathe with Ella around, let alone think or pursue any of his obsessions. So he bought her a house in Hancock Park. Technically, they lived there together, 
but it was a big place, with a wing for each unhappy half of the couple, neither of which had a bed bigger than a twin, and many routes of escape. Howard could now easily slip out to cruise around in his roles, picking up wannabe starlets, or to spend his night at Maud's, a brothel staffed by girls picked for their resemblance to stars like Norma Shearer and Gloria Swanson. Maud's was just one example of how, in Hollywood in the 1920s, fantasies created on sound stages started to bleed into off-screen life. From the storybook style of architecture popping up around town, Humphrey Bogart, just getting started as an actor, bought a late 20s house with a drawbridge. Two bars like the Coconut Grove and the Zulu Hut, which used Hollywood-style costume and set design to create a theme park-like backdrop for illicit drinking. A certain aspect of social life in Los Angeles at this time involved buying into a mass delusion. I don't have to tell you how this can mess people up. You know, you've read Day of the Locust. Occasionally, Hughes would just demand that Ella return to Houston, where all of society whispered about what her husband was up to in Hollywood. Ella would be stuck in this gossipy society bubble until Howard gave in to her near-daily pleas to come home to Hollywood. Finally, in the fall of 1927, Hughes figured out a way to shut his wife out of his life without actually getting rid of her. He created a private sanctuary in the basement of their mansion, a network of connecting libraries behind double-locked doors, where he'd pour over aviation tomes and get lost in loops of newsreel footage of aerial battles from World War I. He got a print of Wings, the Clara Bow fighter pilot silent that had won the first Academy Award for Best Picture earlier that year. And Wings inspired Hughes to do better. He pledged to make his own hyper-realistic World War I flying movie, using at least two million of his own dollars, with no help or interference from a Hollywood studio. He'd call it Hell's Angels. Going it alone like this was not something that was done in late 1920s Hollywood. No one had the money, but also, nobody had as much to prove as Howard Hughes. From the very beginning, the Hollywood establishment and its media viewed Hughes's gambit with skepticism, which Hughes only stoked by spending money like a madman. He spent a half a million dollars buying up old planes, which he had had scouts track down in France and Germany. And Hughes would hole up in his study and work through the night, plotting sequences. One would involve two 60-foot models of Zeppelins, one of which would catch fire. That sequence alone would cost nearly $500,000, more than three times the cost of the average feature at that time. Hughes also burned through personnel. He'd show up on set after not having slept all night, suited up in a costume of breeches and a flight jacket and proceed to order the director around. The film's first two directors quit rather than deal with the pretty boy billionaire's dictatorial management style. Finally, Hughes decided to direct the movie himself. So began a three-year saga, through which Hughes's obsession with this movie, which he saw as his only chance at true Hollywood power and infamy, destroyed his personal life, nearly depleted his fortune, and more than once, almost killed him. habit of directing aerial sequences from the air, flying above the stunt pilots and communicating with them via radio. One day, Hughes told Paul Mance, a World War veteran turned Hollywood's top stunt pilot, 
that he wanted a plane to plummet towards the ground, only to pull up at just 200 feet above the runway. Mance told Hughes that none of his crew would do it, that no one would, that it was a suicide mission. Hughes said, Fine, I'll do it myself. So Hughes got in the plane and got the plummet down, but he was so concerned with nailing the shot that he didn't pull the plane up fast enough. The crash was so bad that the crew assumed Hughes couldn't have survived. The plane, or what was left of it, was dripping with blood. But Hughes wasn't inside. Somehow, he had managed to get out of the cockpit, and the crew found him in the hangar, in shock, babbling incoherently about golf. He had injuries to his skull and spinal cord, and by the time he reached the operating table, he was in a coma. And yet, the day after surgery, Hughes sat up in bed and said he felt fine. The day after that, he was back on the set. While all of this was happening, Ella was still trying to get her husband to participate in their marriage. She began traveling with her society friends to New York, New Hampshire, Chicago. She was constantly asking Hughes to join her, and he was constantly pointing to Hell's Angels as the reason why he couldn't get away. In October 1928, in Houston, Ella collapsed. At the hospital, she was diagnosed with ulcers, dehydration, and general exhaustion. Hughes did not leave the shoot. Once his wife was out of the hospital and convalescing at a friend's place, Hughes sent Ella a telegram. Still trying to shoot the big air scene from Hell's Angels with 32 airplanes in Oakland. Suffering under bad weather. Hope you're feeling better. As the fall stretched into the winter and Ella languished in Houston without so much as a phone call from her husband, the name Billy Dove started to seep into the whispers of the society set. Billy Dove was a major silent film star, more popular at the box office than Mary Pickford, and she cast enough of a spell that years later, Billie Holiday made Dove her namesake. Dove had started as a Ziegfeld girl, and after appearing opposite Douglas Fairbanks in the hit The Black Pirate, she signed a contract with Warner Brothers that guaranteed $100,000 per film. Within Hollywood, she was a queen. But back in Houston, when Ella's sister heard the rumors that Howard was fooling around with Dove, she forced Ella to get on a train to get her husband back. A nice Southern belle would not be upstaged by an actress. The class dynamics at work here are fascinating. Ella Rice Hughes had no money of her own, but her upbringing and family name meant there was a place for her in Southern high society. Within that old school, old money establishment, an actress like Billy Dove, regardless of her net worth, was considered so low class that even if she wasn't a tramp, she might as well be. In Hollywood, Howard Hughes was a hayseed who was tolerated because he threw around money. There was an endless supply of would-be upwardly mobile girls who had come to Hollywood looking for stardom, whose poverty and ambition he could take advantage of. But he was only so useful to them. He could pay for dinners, buy diamonds and furs, but he still hadn't actually made anyone a star. That was about to change. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. 
Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In February 1929, Howard Hughes had to face the cold, hard facts. The film he had been pouring himself into for two years, which wasn't even finished, was already a relic. Sound had come into Hollywood and transformed it, and there was no way he would get the reaction he wanted if he released Hell's Angels as a silent picture. There was only one way out. He told his stunned accountant, We have to convert Hell's Angels into a talkie. He had already spent $2.2 million on the movie. The sound conversion would bring the total cost to nearly $4 million. The two male stars of the film, Ben Lyons and James Hall, had fine speaking voices, but the female lead had been Greta Nissen, a Swedish beauty whose accent was a no-go, particularly since the character was supposed to be British. Hughes had to replace her, cheaply, and he wanted to do it with someone whose sex appeal would help sell the movie. Agent Arthur Landau urged Hughes to take a chance on his client, a blonde who had last appeared in a Laurel and Hardy short. Hughes met Jean Harlow and watched a screen test, but he wasn't impressed. But Landau persisted. Hughes hadn't been able to get a good look at Harlow's body, so he asked her agent, How is she in the bomb department? The answer? Big enough, believe me. Jean Harlow got the job. Some histories would have you believe that Jean Harlow slept her way to stardom through Hughes, whose unhappy marriage and desire to be seen as a ladies' man made him an easy mark. Harlow and Hughes did have a fling, which included weekend getaways in Mexico, and as a director, Hughes made sure to exploit Harlow's assets every chance he could. He oversaw her costuming to ensure that it pushed the boundaries of what was considered acceptable, revealing large expanses of skin and implying even more. He had publicity photos taken that emphasized her bust line and had them sent to every newspaper in the country, as though a dizzy-looking blonde in a low-cut sweater qualified as news. Maybe it did. Hughes' personal publicist coined the phrase platinum blonde to describe Harlow. Between that and the also commonly used branding bombshell, Harlow was introduced as an embodiment of not just sex, but also money and military might. This was the perfect encapsulation and seductive advertisement of the themes of Hell's Angels. But Jean Harlow, easily exploitable though she was, wasn't really Howard Hughes' type. The romance that would have a real impact on Hughes' life was with Billy Dove. Hughes had met Dove through Marion Davies. When they were introduced, Hughes fell in love at first sight. Dove was not quite so charmed. As she described it, he just looked at me and looked at me without saying a word. I thought, surely this can't be the young man they're raving about, the man with the millions. He was a zombie. I didn't like him at all. Hughes, meanwhile, was convinced he had met the love of his life. He followed her around Hollywood from one party to another night spot, and slowly a romance developed. By mid-spring 1929, Ella had decamped to Houston for good, having all but given up on her marriage. Billy had her own husband, a director named Irving Willett, but Billy insisted they were married in name only. Billy promised Howard that her own divorce was soon to come. But Willett wasn't going to give up so easily. His wife was too valuable of a cash cow, and Ella was out of sight, but she hadn't filed for divorce. She was still hoping, against all evidence to the contrary, that she and Howard might be able to work things out.
One morning in June, after having spent the whole night in the edit bay, Hughes returned to the mansion and passed out, fully clothed. Around noon, his housekeeper found him flopping around, unconscious, drenched in sweat. He was diagnosed with spinal meningitis, which at that time could be fatal. After a couple of days of this, the doctor suggested that Mrs. Hughes be informed. Ella was in New York, about to leave for a trip to Europe, when she got the wire. Howard dying. She pulled her trunks off the ocean liner and put them on a train headed for L.A. A few hours later, Hughes regained consciousness. Turned out it was a misdiagnosis, he just had the flu, and he was informed that his wife was on her way. He sent numerous cablegrams to Ella, arranging for the message to be hand-delivered when she changed trains in Chicago. The gist of these telegrams? False alarm, I'm fine, go to Europe, enjoy yourself, don't come home to Hollywood. Billy Dove had moved into the mansion while Ella was away. And with the coffers low thanks to the Hells Angels overruns, the last thing Howard needed was his estranged wife stumbling into ironclad evidence of his infidelity before she had actually filed for divorce. Ella got Howard's messages, but she didn't get the message. This was the most she had heard from her husband in months. She took his backward bends to get in touch with her as a sign that he really cared. Hughes' accountant, Noah Dietrich, picked up Ella and her sister from the train station, and Ella's sister discreetly asked him if it was safe for Ella to come home. Dietrich thought she meant, is he contagious? Yeah, sure, he said, perfectly safe. She was actually asking if there was a chance of catching Howard in a compromising situation with another woman. So at that very moment, Billy Dove was collecting her things and escaping out a back door. When Ella arrived, Howard made it clear that there was no chance for a marital reconciliation. A few days later, now fully recovered, Howard took Billy yachting off to Catalina Island, a weekend jaunt intended to send both of their spouses the message that their meal tickets had fully slipped away. Billy and Howard were going to do what they wanted to do, regardless of the cost. It was going to cost plenty. Ella agreed pretty easily to a civilized divorce. She'd take $1.2 million, payable in yearly installments through 1933, and she didn't even mention infidelity in her suit. The problem was on the other side. Billy's husband put detectives on his estranged wife's tail to collect information for his own purposes, which could also help wreck the deal Howard had brokered with Ella. Outraged and paranoid, Hughes asked Willett what it would take for a clean divorce. Willett said, $350,000. So, Hughes had $350,000 bills sent to Willett's house that afternoon. Problem solved? Not exactly. The only way to get a quick divorce in those days was to do it in Nevada. But you had to be a resident of Nevada, meaning you had to have lived there for at least six weeks in order to divorce there which somewhat negated the quickness. Howard Hughes came up with a crazy plan. He and Billy would pretend to be brother and sister and work on a farm and live together in a shed. That way, they could be together, 
away from the prying eyes of the media while they were waiting out Billy's Nevada residency. The young couple gleefully went through with it, ecstatic over what they were getting away with for about two weeks, until Howard's lawyers figured out that a shed on a farm wouldn't satisfy Nevada's residency requirements after all. So they gave up the charade and went back to Hollywood, where on January 2nd, 1930, Billy Dove appeared before the court to testify against her husband in her divorce suit against him. She claimed that she was filing for divorce because Willett was violent, that he had been known to beat her publicly at Hollywood parties. Her attorney asked for numerous recesses so that when his client became tongue-tied, he could go outside and telephone Howard for further instructions. The hearing took about an hour. The judge was one of Howard's golf buddies. Billy was granted the divorce. In the courthouse lobby, she was mobbed by reporters, clamoring to know when she was going to marry Hughes. I will say this, she said. Howard is a brilliant air pilot and a first-class golfer. She ran out the courthouse doors and got into Hughes' waiting limo. But all was not bliss. For some reason, after all the divorce Michigas, Howard and Billy didn't marry right away. She went away, shooting on location, and overwhelmed by the recent marital drama and the still ongoing effort to save Hell's Angels, Hughes fell into a nervous depression, exacerbated by whiskey. He'd spend 18 hours a day in the edit room, and then come back to the mansion and dig into his father's collection of 1918 bourbon, maybe shoot some guns or hit golf balls late into the night. Hell's Angels and Howard had become the targets of Hollywood's most vicious party jokes. Three aviators had been killed over the course of filming. Post-production was costing $25,000 a day, and given that they had shot 560 hours of film, it went on for a lot of days. Between his divorce, Billy's divorce, and the movie, Howard had spent much of a fortune that was already at risk of evaporating thanks to the market crash. Hell's Angels finally premiered on June 30th, 1930 at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. In the limo with Billy, a mile away from the theater, Hughes sent a radio signal to trigger a mock aerial battle in the skies over the theater. He was pulling out all the stops because he truly believed that everything was riding on this night. Not just his career in Hollywood, but his fortune and his life itself. The night before the premiere, Hughes told Noah Dietrich that if the movie didn't work out and he went broke, he was going to fly his plane as high as he could go and then nosedive into the ocean. Hell's Angels tells the story of two brothers, carefree playboys who become World War I fighter pilots, both of them falling in love with the same girl, a strumpet played by Jean Harlow. More than war, its subjects are fear and desire and the meaning of manhood. For an early sound film, most of the performances are surprisingly modern and unaffected. Harlow isn't much of a line reader, but she's got presence. In the film's absolutely stunningly beautiful hand-tinted color sequences in which her hair, flesh, and barely their dress fluctuate between the colors of cotton candy and rose gold, she's luminous in a completely vulgar way that's really interesting. It's definitely one of the pre-codiest pre-code films I've ever seen, and its depiction of men and women suggests that Hughes, with one marriage and divorce already under his belt, still had a teenage boy's manic naivete about sexuality. There's one scene in which Harlow nearly has her ear swallowed whole by a drunken paramour. It was Hughes' intention to be realistic and gritty in the flight sequences, but even at its most lunk-headed, 
the human stuff in this film has surprising vitality. Hughes didn't write any of the many drafts of the script, but at times, the two brothers played by Ben Lyons and James Hall seemed to be playing out the conflict that Hughes felt within himself. The genuine desire for serious accomplishment versus the pull toward excess, vice, and passion. Here's a scene in which one brother is trying to convince the other, who has just been cuckolded by Harlow, to go AWOL from flight duty. The conversation's taking place in a brothel, while both have busty French maids sucking on their faces. You just don't know anything about women. They're all the same. I've been telling you that for years. Maybe you'll believe me now. Helen's not that sort. Oh, nonsense. The war, she's changed. Well, you're wrong, Roy. War doesn't change people. It's like getting drunk. It brings out what people really are. You can't make me believe Helen was like that before. Well, she was. I've known it all along. Listen, Roy. Never love a woman. Just make love to her. You see? Like this. Look. We come south again. Go ahead, Roy. Try it. Hey, listen, Molly. Molly, go easy. We got to go up at 3 o'clock. Oh, listen, Roy. The hell with this 3 o'clock business. What do you mean? Just act the hell with it. Say, you're crazy, Monty. We can't get out of it now. Oh, why can't we? Say, listen, Roy, all this idealistic stuff won't get you anywhere. You tried it on Helen, and what happened? You got a kick in the face. You're getting to look as though you're right. Of course I'm right. Uh, listen, Roy, what's the difference if we don't go? Los Angeles holds up pretty well today, but in its time, it must have been a real stunner. The audience at the Chinese theater ate it up, giving Hughes a 20-minute standing ovation. All the skepticism over this rich kid going it alone was replaced by a new narrative. A Hollywood outsider had bested the studios by producing the first blockbuster talkie. Actually, Hells Angels' grosses fell about $1.5 million short of recouping the film's insane budget. But the perception in Hollywood was that it was a hit, and Hughes had proven himself to be the most important independent producer in town. And subsequently, he had a pretty good run. Two films he had produced concurrent to Hell's Angels, The Racket and The Mating Game, were both hits. He convinced Howard Hawks to make the original Scarface and encouraged him to defy the censorship standards of the time. But Howard Hughes, Hollywood boy producer, also had misses. He bought a company that was experimenting with a new color film technology, and that failed. He signed Harlow to a contract, but could never figure out what to do with her. Then he bought Billy's contract from Warner Brothers and started building projects around her. Hughes committed nearly half a million dollars to three films featuring his paramour, the woman on whom he had already spent millions in order to enable her to become his wife and yet hadn't married. In fact, all told, Hughes had spent $16 million between 1927 and 1930. It got so bad that he came close to defaulting on Ella's divorce settlement. Just as he was making a name for himself as a player in Hollywood, he was also on the verge of going broke. The only thing to do was to mortgage his father's tool company, the source of Hughes's wealth and still his most tangible asset. The executives at that company were enraged over what they saw as a stupid kid's frittering away of a fortune on frivolous things like women in movies. 
A deal was brokered so that Hughes would have to reduce his personal spending to $250,000 a year. A tight budget for him, and yet more than 60 times what the average family earned at that time. He was also forbidden from making any additional major expenditures. And that meant no more investing in movies, other than the ones he already had in production, including two Billy Dove vehicles and Scarface. Howard had been on the set of the latter film all night when he came home one morning in 1931 to discover that Billy had left him. History has not recorded the reason for the breakup. In fact, history, or at least a half dozen Hughes and Dove biographers, has repeatedly recorded the notion that the cause of the Dove-Hughes split was totally mysterious making it maybe the best-kept secret in the history of Hollywood romance. Some have theorized that she couldn't handle Howard's constant affairs, although Billy had been known to take lovers on location herself, and or that he was too controlling, that she knew he had detectives tracking her every move, and she got tired of it. A few years later, Billy married another man, had a son, and adopted a daughter, so maybe she just wanted an old-fashioned type of domesticity that Howard Hughes could never give her. Before she died in 1997, Dove stoked the curiosity by saying, My reasons for breaking with him were intensely personal. It was what I would describe as a small thing. Some might call it insignificant. A few years after Billy's death, Darwin Porter published Hell's Angels, an 800-page doorstop biography of Hughes, subtitled The Secret Life of the Bisexual Billionaire. Porter's kind of in the business of publishing salacious, probably half-invented sexual histories of old Hollywood personalities. Another one of his books is called Brando Unzipped. He likes to invent unimaginable, vulgar conversations between long-dead celebrities, and he really likes to use the word beefcake. According to Darwin Porter, Hughes broke off his relationship with Billy Dove, not the other way around, and he did it because he found out that Billy was hooking up with a golf instructor, a golf instructor who had unwisely confided to the germaphobe Hughes that he had contracted the clap. We may never know what really happened between Billy Dove and Howard Hughes. What we do know is that after they broke up between 1931 and 1933, Howard Hughes went on a starlet bender, and one of the young girls he tried to bed during this time was none other than Ida Lupino, the actress turned Hollywood's first prominent female film director. More on that tale in our next installment of The Many Loves of Howard Hughes. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth, that's me, and our special guest star, as Howard Hughes, was Noah Segan. You can find out more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.
You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.